0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of The New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bears Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, Or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it.
1: On or about December 1910, human character changed. I'm not saying that one went out as one might into a garden and there saw that a rose had flowered or that a hen had laid an egg. The change was not sudden and definite like that. But a change there was, nevertheless. And since one must be arbitrary, let us date it about the year 1910.
2: human character really changed throughout history? Did people a hundred and some years ago feel and think differently? Did people before 1910 feel and think differently than people afterwards? Virginia Woolf makes this bold claim. In 1927, she published to the White House, which didn't just make a claim, but changed the way in which we think about time, in which we think about experience, in which we think about the relation between women's work and men's work, and about the role of the novel in making us aware and understand ourselves more deeply and in the way in which history impacts us. I speak with Jared Stark, who's professor at Eckhart College and an expert on modernist fiction, and he explained to me how To the Lighthouse is not only a masterpiece of modernist literature, but a book that teaches us how to read in general. So first of all, Jared, thank you for joining Think About It, the podcast, today.
3: It's great to be here.
2: So, Jared, you've published a couple of books. One of them is called, you co-wrote this book, No Commonplace, The Holocaust Testimony of Alina bakal which was a book that tried to give voice to experiences that otherwise may be lost or are very difficult to get gain expression. And then your most recent book is called A Death of One's Own, literature, law, and the right to die, where you again sort of tackled, in a very precise and difficult study, how to give voice to experiences that elude simple expression. And today we're going to talk about Virginia Woolf's 1927 novel, To the Lighthouse, where she initially starts out by addressing her own childhood memories of her vacations in Cornwall with her family. She came from a family also with eight children, just like the characters in in the novel. And she spent some of her summers with her parents who were, you know, both had been divorced and have half-siblings. But this is not a book really that's so clearly anchored in reference. This is a book that does something else. So can you start us out by talking about the, the significance of this novel, Virginia Woolf's third novel, It's considered one of the great masterpieces of modernist fiction. It's a big question. I know. The whole point is to say it's obviously a book also you really greatly care about, right? I mean, I've spent now days or really weeks immersed in it, and you really can get lost and kind of be adrift in that novel.
3: I know that in some of your other podcasts, you began with T.S. Eliot's claim in Tradition and the Individual Talent that the new work of art reorders the tradition, that it changes the way in which we think about literature more broadly. And I think one of the corollaries to that, to paraphrase someone I studied with, is that the great work of literature needs to teach us how to read it that we can't come to it with a preconceived interpretive protocol, with a preconceived idea of what it will have meant. And I think that To the Lighthouse is kind of exemplary in this respect, that it's a book that introduces us to a new way of perceiving the world, of thinking about the relationships between individuals and about the very nature of experience, and particularly of inner experience of subjectivity, and that in order to do this, it slowly introduces its readers and teaches its readers about its own project, about its own method.
2: It has a kind of dimension. It parts with or breaks with a certain way in which the novel is about certain things. And this novel is not just about things, but it's teaching us what it means to read a novel. So Exactly,
3: exactly. The novel, you know, at various points does allude to 19th century novels. So it mentions Sir Walter Scott, and it mentions George Eliot's Middlemarch, and it mentions Balzac. It mentions kind of monuments of... The 19th century novel that are organized around one single character and usually around the growth and the development of that character and in which the narrative tends to focus on plot here instead we have a novel that is an ensemble piece it brings together a number of different characters some more central than others but nonetheless it, it continues to shift its focal point um shift the focal consciousness so that no single character dominates that also in its structure kind of frustrates our desire for plot in kind of sketching the novel before as she began writing it wolf imagined it as two large blocks connected by a corridor, and she actually kind of drew a kind of sideways H or fat I with one block on the top and then a small corridor connecting a larger block of space on the bottom, mapping out the unusual structure of the novel. The first section, called the window, about 120 pages, takes place in a single day, in or around 1910. Then we have a small section, just around 20 pages, called Time Passes, that covers 10 years. And finally, the third section, The Lighthouse, around 60 pages, that covers, again, a single day. So things, especially in this central section, Time Passes, things that we might expect to be central, emphasized elements of a conventional novel, moments that would be decisive for the plot, are... Treated almost with a sense of embarrassment. Key things, like one of the sons dying in the First World War, are confined to square brackets.
1: A shell exploded. Twenty or thirty young men were blown up in France. Among them, Andrew Ramsey, whose death, mercifully, was instantaneous.
3: Another daughter dying in childbirth, again confined to square brackets.
1: Prue Ramsey died that summer in some illness connected with childbirth, which was indeed a tragedy, people said. Everything, they said, had promised so well.
3: The plot, what, is, what there is of the plot, sort of takes place in parentheses.
2: That's a very interesting and strange way of foiling kind of the reader's habits to say, to put something in brackets that we would think is either so tragic. Or so monumental that we would devote a lot of time. And in some ways, by not devoting space in the novel, both what is she doing with those elements? So those are, as you said, there's not really one central character in the first section of the book. There's a couple, the eight children, several house guests, they're spending a day in a summer house. And then in the middle passage, we learn two of them passed away. The mother of the household also passes away, but it's interesting that you said it's almost as if they're embarrassing or as if they're indelicate, or how do you make sense of that, that Virginia Woolf puts them in this other space?
3: Yes, yeah, let me just back up for a second. You mentioned that there is a kind of autobiographical set of references that one could align to to the novel, right? As you mentioned, the Woolf family... Leased the house in St. Ives in Cornwall from the year that Virginia was born, 1882, for about 10 years, or for 12 years until 1894. Then a Wolf's mother, Julia, died in 1895, just as Mrs. Ramsey dies into the lighthouse in the space between the first and the third sections. And then in 1905, around 10 years after Julia Stevens' death, Wolf and some of her siblings returned for the first time to St. Ives and rented a house nearby and revisit this place of their childhood in Cornwall, where she and her father, her seven siblings and half-siblings, and also a consistent stream of guests would spend summers. Talent House, the house that they rented, is... On the hill in St. Ives, it overlooks the bay, it overlooks the Free lighthouse out in the sea. Today, there's a wonderful group of tenants who live in this house that is now a rental property, who have become stewards of this memory and are recreating the garden and growing the flowers that are mentioned in Wolf's work. And so there are lots of ways in which the novel invites these you know, very specific associations with Wolf's life, with her time, with her personal concerns. But at the same time, she makes you know several kind of crucial displacements from these facts in writing the novel. So that rather than setting the novel in the southwestern extreme of England, in St. Ives, in Cornwall, it's set on the Isle of Skye, in the northwestern extreme, in the Scottish Hebrides, So it's already fictionalized, it's already displaced, it's dislocated, it makes it harder to read the novel strictly as a kind of account of her life. And perhaps more importantly, she changes the time period. The first part of the novel is set in 1910, the return to the summer house 10 years later, but now in 1920, crucially with the First World War intervening between those two dates.
2: part of the novel she creates this sense it's rather stunning to have an entire novel to say over 100 pages in one afternoon all the way to dinner with people and you're moving in and out of their minds essentially so you're not quite sure sometimes whose perspective you're inhabiting but it hangs together by all of them being in this shared space for different reasons. They're house guests, they're children, they're parents, people have different positions of authority. There's a kind of stern, somewhat forbidding, or aloof father. There's the mother who seems to connect everyone. And what I walked away with is this very strong sense that reality is created as much by the real things in it, the referential points, the context, the contours, it's Cornwall or the Isle of Skye, whatever it is, as by the kind of emotional import we give to certain things. We overvalue and undervalue certain things. They're not physical relations, but some things are important. The little boy James in the beginning who wants to go to the lighthouse and is kind of foiled because the weather won't be good, it's devastating to him. But I could relate when something is really devastating that seems rather insignificant in the scheme of things. And this, I think... Wolf wants to bring out, right, that there's devastation or joy or elation in things that we tend to overlook through the flow of time.
3: Yes, and just again to provide a bit of context for this, I guess, new and really in some ways unprecedented way of representing human experience. In an essay just before she was writing The Lighthouse, Wolf wrote kind of somewhat provocatively that on or about 1910, this kind of a famous utterance, on or about 1910, human character changed. And she's referring in the first instance to an exhibition, Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Art, that took place in London in December 1910.
2: Give me the quote again, on <laughs> or around 1910.
3: and human character
2: changed. Human character changed. That human <laughs> character was different, that people were different before and then with what we call modernity, people are different. Okay, so
3: yeah, go on. Yeah. Yes. So the sense that, and she writes elsewhere, that the tools of one generation are useless to the next. There's on the one hand a heavy sense of the burden of the past. She's living in an England in a familial structure where patriarchal traditions, where British imperialism, where literary tradition you know, does take the form of a series of interlocking and overwhelming monuments, to recall Eliot's term. On the other hand, there is a sense in her work that the fragmentation of society, that new visions, new ways of representing the world changes in, in human relations. She connects this change of character to more broad changes in human relations, those between masters and servants, husbands and wives, parents and children, that these changes also present a kind of an opportunity to address old questions and old concern in a new way.
2: When you say human relations, there's a kind of an opening up. It's an opportunity. It's not just a breakdown of tradition and we're losing sort of old ways of doing things in the proper way. So this is an interesting thing about this book. So the book looks back, although we mm-hmm. don't know that in the first part, to this kind of beautiful summer is one evening where this meal is achieved and Mrs. Ramsey hosts this wonderful dinner with some issues going on or the kids are coming in and out. Some are late, some are not you know, the young ones haven't gone to sleep, what a woman in a big house would deal with. But Wolf is not saying we've lost this and this is altogether bad. So it's interesting when you said earlier, mm-hmm. when she punctuates these little devastating moments, someone died, someone died in childbirth, she, uh, Andrew was killed in the war, Mrs. Ramsay passed away. That is not what matters, but something is gone irrevocably. And where are we now?
3: Yeah. Wolf's work, and particularly to the Lighthouse, allows us to see is the way in which the domestic, the way in which the ordinary, is not just a kind of isolated and secondary and subsidiary sphere of life, but the way in which the domestic is the site where large philosophical questions, critical historical currents, and literary traditions and literary echoes all converge and intersect and are subject to a kind of rearrangement. Two aspects of the novel that I like to emphasize when I speak about it with students. The first concerns the image of the woman artist which becomes even more important after Mrs. Ramsay has died and where one of the main figures, a surviving figure in the third section of the novel, is a female painter, Lily Briscoe, one of the house guests. During the first section of the novel, a woman who returns with the father and with some of the children ten years later to the summer house and Lily is, throughout the novel, is trying to make a painting. She's trying to depict reality as she sees it. In particular, she's trying to paint Mrs. Ramsey, but she's trying to paint this moment, and she's trying to capture the truth of the moment in ways that would be true to what she calls her vision, and this is a vision that she distinguishes On the one hand, from academic realism, and on the other, from the kinds of pastoral seascapes that had become the staple of painting along the seaside, Yellow Sails and Pink Ladies. So she's trying to create a vision, and as she's thinking about her own painting, thinking about the problem of capturing the truth, She also becomes a figure for the woman artist and a figure for the writer.
2: Let me ask you something about this. So she has two conceits, you're saying. She's trying to capture the truth, which seems to me she's trying to capture the moment which she inhabits. And strangely, the painting of this painting takes the entire period of the novel. Ten years ago, she started. She goes back and starts picking up a painting that she couldn't quite complete. And then she works also against, as you just said, one of the outer house guests who said, women cannot paint and women cannot write. And so the burden on her is to say, as a woman, she's supposed to, by these male chauvinists around her who are saying, you can't really paint in any case. And by her saying, the experience continually eludes me. I can't grasp it. It's sort of in front of me, but then I can't get to it. I can't nail it, which is one of the main conceits of sort of modernism, sort of how do you hold on to time? How do you capture this moment in time without being melancholic looking back or exaggerating its significance?
3: Right, so we have the convergence, as you just suggested, of these kind of two concerns. Um, On the one hand, right, Lily Briscoe can't quite get Charles Tansy's voice out of her head. Women can't write, women can't paint and always feels that he and other male figures in the novel are these imposing presences that interrupt and get in the way of her self-expression and of the validity of her vision of the world. In order to contest this patriarchal vision of the real and ordering of reality. She struggles with, as you mentioned, kind of the modernist paradox, how to capture a present that is itself fleeting, ephemeral, contingent. And she discovers a kind of a resource for her own art, kind of surprisingly enough, in Mrs. Ramsey's domesticity. Domesticity that might seem to be you know, a kind of acquiescence to to Victorian patriarchal values and familial structures that might seem to accept the place of the woman in the house. Mrs. Ramsey becomes actually a figure of fascination and a kind of inspiration for Lily.
1: She looked at the steps. They were empty. She looked at her canvas. It was blurred. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there, in the centre. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision.
2: this kind of validation of domesticity which as you said people could also take as kind of acquiescing to the role of women is to run a good house and the role of men is to think about it and we don't imagine mr ramsey even knowing what gets put on the dinner table and how it gets there and he doesn't even worry about how to pay for anything he just philosophizes Right. So how do you read that? Virginia Woolf seems to have both perspectives in her book, which is amazing that she sort of contains both of those.
3: One thing that Lily kind of sees in Mrs. Ramsey's life as she kind of reflects on her life and her being after her death is she sees her as attempting to, and I quote, make of the moment something permanent. To make of the moment something permanent. And Lily, you know, recognizes that this desire is perhaps impossible or paradoxical. At another moment, she thinks she wanted to say not one thing, but everything. The urgency of the moment always missed its mark. Words fluttered sideways and struck the object inches too low. The urgency of the moment always missed its mark.
2: But this seems to be Virginia Woolf sort of trying to, in this incredibly gorgeous book, which is, I read somewhere, it's, it's in its Anglo-Saxon vocabulary, meaning they're actually not big words. It's very simple words in a way that try to get to reality without missing it. So Virginia Woolf is writing about a woman artist trying to get to the present, to hold on to it. You say it may be paradoxical. It may be that art is the one way we can get to it to make something lasting, which is Mr. Ramney's kind of futile worry. Am I going to outlast myself by writing important books? Who's going to end up making an important piece of work? Or is Lily's painting going to be rolled up or hung up in the servants' quarters and lost under a couch? So art would be the one. The other one is kind of this deep affection or love people have for one another. There are moments when they have a certain congruence or they're existing together in time that seems to outlast something else. Wolfe gives us this idea that there is a moment that you can actually hold on to it, right? Or do the words always miss the mark and hit just below the object they're supposed to define?
3: You know, it's a difficult question. There's a few different ways of coming at it. There's also something specific about Mrs. Ramsey that does some discussion. She realizes earlier in the novel that she is a figure who has been accused of dominating situations, of wishing to dominate. That was the charge against her, and she thought it most unjust. Mrs. Ramsey always associated with various kinds of imperial queenly figures, In an early moment, she receives a book of poetry from another of the house guests, a poet, Augustus Carmichael. One book is inscribed, to her who must be obeyed. Another, she's alluded to as Helen, as Helen of Troy. She, throughout the first part, is reading one of Grimm's tales to her son James, the fisherman and his wife. And the fisherman and his wife, you know, you may recall the story of a fisherman who pulls a flounder from the sea who turns out to be an enchanted prince and begs the fisherman to set him free in exchange for granting his wishes. And so the fisherman tells his wife the story. And at first she asks for a hut instead of their shack. And that wish is granted. And then she wants more. And soon she has a castle and then becomes king and emperor and pope. And finally, she wishes for even more. She wishes to become God. And the fisherman reluctantly goes to the sea and asks for this wish from the flounder. who says, it is granted. And he goes home to find her again, living in her pigsty.
2: It's a devastating story. I know this fairy tale from when I was a child, and it's about being corrupted by greed. It happens to be this poor fisherman's wife who is the greedy person. It's very strange Mm -hmm. that Mrs. Ramsey is reading this story to her son.
3: Right. So One dimension of it is this fear, this anxiety about imposing oneself, this resistance to becoming a dominating figure. This form of domination is something that's associated with some of the male figures in the novel. Charles Tansley, who's the young student who's followed his professor, the father, to the Isle of Skye, is accused of always needing to assert himself, of always needing to say, I, I, I. And this imposition of the eye of the first-person singular is something that Woolf also accuses modern male novelists of in her slightly later essay, A Room of One's Own, where she talks about reading novels by male authors and feeling the this persistent, looming shadow of the eye across the page. And so part of the project of... Writing of the woman artist, or what Wolf would also call the androgynous artist, the artist who transcends the male-female distinction and binary, the challenge is to find a way of writing a novel, to find a way of producing art that does not impose itself on reality. This stirs up a kind of long accusation of the 19th century novel, that it provides an excessive ordering of reality and that in ordering reality, it sort of imposes its plots, its expectations, its worldviews on its reader. Right. And so Emma Bovary reads romances and is infected with the expectations, the plot expectations, the life expectations that the novel leverages. And so I think one of the concerns is to the lighthouse And one of the concerns of Wolf's writing is how a work of art, a work of art that does, to a certain extent, wish or need to change the world, to reorder tradition, if we recall Eliot's terms, to teach us a new way of seeing, how can it do so without dominating, without imposing a particular eye, a particular vision? And so I think much of the novel is devoted to moves in which each individual perspective on just the ordinary events that are taking place and with each individual interpretation of things is always doubled or countered or shadowed by another. Right? So even the lighthouse, right? the you know central and title image of the book. The lighthouse, as you mentioned, right? The lighthouse appears... You know, twice in the novel, first as a promise and then as a destination. You know, it could seem to have a kind of symbolic dimension. As you mentioned, James in the, very, in the opening sequence is frustrated by his father, who has declared that the, tomorrow the weather will be poor and that therefore the dreamed of, fantasized of trip to the lighthouse will not take place.
2: He's more than frustrated.
3: And then we kind of you know, have a moment in James that said, had there been an axe handy or a poker, any weapon that would have gashed a hole in his father's breast and killed him, there and then James would have seized him. Right? This <laughs> Oedipal fantasy, right? this patricidal fantasy of destroying the father who stands in the way of one's fulfillment, of one's wishes. And the wish here right, tied up with reaching with possessing this you know phallic lighthouse right out there in the sea this cyclops like monument so we could you know develop a whole kind of symbolic reading of the oedipal dimensions of the lighthouse and of this story but james in the end as he in the third section the lighthouse now it's 10 years later james is around 16 James and Cam and and Mr. Ramsey are now, having returned to the summer home, finally making will-be-a-successful trip out to the lighthouse. And James thinks, so that was the lighthouse, was it? He's thinking back to his memory of the lighthouse and says, no, the other was also the lighthouse, for nothing was simply one thing. The other lighthouse was true, too. It was sometimes hardly to be seen across the bay. So there's a bifocal vision right, of the lighthouse as it appeared from the distance, as it, as it appeared as an object of desire, as it provoked this patricidal rage, the lighthouse of his childhood. And then there is the lighthouse as it comes into a different perspective as they approach the small island, the rock, where the lighthouse is situated, the lighthouse of the present, the lighthouse when James, steering the boat, is affirmed that he is steering a straight and true course, and the lighthouse where there's a moment of appreciation of the Father. And neither of these is allowed priority.
2: But it's not that it's just that Wolf is just saying it's complex but she's somehow saying cognition, sensation, and perception are connected or fused in a way that literature may get to. In some ways, to me, this sounds even more interesting than sort of philosophy of consciousness where sort of trying to tease these things apart. She's saying what James is saying, there's two ways, and not one is prior to the other, not one I can discard. I haven't grown and learned that one has been infantile and silly, but that perception, cognition... And sort of sensation are fused in an important way, and that I think both is trying to say to get to reality is to recognize this fusion rather than to tease them apart and keep on teasing them apart for the sake of advancement. Then do they get to the lighthouse at the end of this book? It's sort of <laughs> <no>. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a slow book, well, but it's the, interesting who
3: standing on the shore certainly thinks they do <laughs> yes, uh, they do, but yes, we have this kind of effort to produce. A sense of simultaneity. So again, whereas the traditional novel is organized around chronology, around plot, around cause and effect and explaining outcomes based on causes, Woolf is concerned with the ways in which past and present, one consciousness and another, infuse and interfuse each other. And so when I said earlier that plot is kind of an embarrassment I think it has to do with this effort to achieve a kind of simultaneity. Somewhere in her diaries, she talks about her use of parentheses, which occurs throughout the book, and it's a stylistic feature that every reader notices, you know, what are these parentheses doing here all over the place? And she talks about the parentheses as trying to provoke, and I quote, a sense of reading two things at the same time, of this layering and of moments in time, of thoughts, and of recognizing that this kind of simultaneous existence in, in more than one thought, in more than one place, in more than one time, is characteristic of human experience. That we are here talking, you and I, about to the lighthouse, and yet something else may creep in our mind. Something about, you know, what we're going to have for lunch afterwards, or what time it is, or whether Skype is working properly, or about the elections that are soon to take place. And yet we can also be here talking about To the Lighthouse and learning from it about our own ways of thinking and seeing.
2: Let me ask you a a sort of more general question about this book. What you're saying is that, of course, we live, as you just said, we also live by kind of plotting our lives, sort of saying what happens next, what happened before. We do map ourselves onto time in a way as if time has this kind of narrative structure. That's part of how we make sense of ourselves. But the other thing that Virginia Wolf introduces is we also have all these thoughts simultaneously, and they're not necessarily contradicting each other or canceling each other out, but they can deepen our experience. And I think that's one way in which he says there could be deeper they can't be resolved in favor of one or the other. So when you think of your life sort of does Virginia Woolf, the reason why you teach this and you know the other books you've worked on and written about, do you think that allows people to be a little bit more in touch with that second dimension of life, which is as important as living in a kind of plotted way? This is my goal. This is where I want to get to This is what I want to do next. If you only do that, I think you're missing this part that Virginia Woolf said, You're going to miss those little moments. You're going to miss what she called the matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one. The little daily miracles, illuminations. Because you're going to overlook it all because you want to get to dinner. You want to get to the lighthouse. You want to get done with the book. You're reading for the outcome. And she said, reading is not that. She said, reading is actually being in time in a very profound way with these kinds of layers or depth.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. And this attention to... You know, the overlooked in the world, the overlooked in oneself, valuing what might seem otherwise to be noise, right? That things that we might, thoughts that we might dismiss as noise, memories that might seem to, to get in the way of our desires of the moment or goals of the moment, that this attention to what kind of murmurs beneath the primary concerns, of the moment also has a political dimension. In the novel, Mrs. Ramsay and others are constantly also reflecting on social inequality in their England, but more generally, they're attuned to the ways in which their privilege depends upon the labor of others. One of the central figures of the Time passes section is Mrs. McNabb, the the housekeeper who's getting the house ready for the family to return 10 years later. The trip to the lighthouse is not only touristic expedition. It's not only about sightseeing or about the bonding between father and son. It's also to go and bring socks to the lighthouse keeper's son who's suffering from a tubercular hip. It's to bring any goods to these figures who Mrs. Ramsey empathetically imagines, you know, isolated in the storm, even as they're, you know, playing a crucial social role right there, you know, manning this lighthouse, in order to protect others, right? So the attention to the aspects of oneself that may be disavowed or otherwise overlooked connects in the novel to a larger social and political consciousness.
2: I really like this, that you're connecting listening to things that are easily missed as sort of both what in the technical term, her stream of consciousness, is what maybe at the same time Freud is developing something like listening to if that's possible, what the unconscious tells us and you're saying, that there are social undercurrents in England and in the world that Virginia Woolf is drawing our attention to. You know, we've talked for quite a long time about this novel where it takes place in two days and ten years in between, very short ten years. What else by Virginia Woolf would you recommend where people want to go to after to the lighthouse? You mentioned A Room of One's Own, very important essay about the need for women to find a space where they can express themselves. Anything else you would think yeah, for somebody and, else? And to? A room
3: of one's own for sure. And, and in reading A Room of One's Own to be aware that even as it's a polemical essay, as it's making a point about women's writing and imagining a new way of thinking, not only women's literary history, but literary history more generally, that she's also transforming and doing something new with the very form of the lecture or the essay, that it itself is chock full of stories. And is a playful and experimental piece of writing. Her 1925 novel, Mrs. Dalloway, employs a somewhat similar method to to The Lighthouse in that it transits between and among the consciousness of various characters. It's also structured around the making of a party and also very much deserves uh, your listeners' attention. Great.
2: Well, thank you, Jared, for joining me today on the podcast to talk about Virginia Loves to the Lighthouse. A wonderful conversation so I've spent a lot of time with this book but talking to you makes Uh, me want to go back to to it even more. Thank you so much. Okay, Thank thank
3: you. you.